0: So today we're going to trace the beginning portions of Paul's journey to Rome in Acts 27 through what is a truly hopeless situation. And we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us to hope in God's sovereignty when all seems hopeless. Hope in God's sovereignty when all seems hopeless. But before we dive into God's Word, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask... That as we come to your word this morning, you would open our hearts and minds. You would help us to see who Jesus is so that we would be filled with hope no matter what darkness, no matter what brokenness we face. And Lord, I ask that by the power of your spirit, through your word, which is living and active, you might do a work this morning in our hearts. That the sermon that's heard would be better than the one that's prepared so that we would grow in our hope and confidence in Jesus Christ no matter what we face. So Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted in this place this morning. And we would come to find ourselves confident in him because of who he is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Again, this passage is all about hope in God's sovereignty when all seems hopeless. And if you're not familiar with the term sovereignty, one theologian defines it this way. The sovereignty of God simply refers to the fact that he is Lord over creation. And as the sovereign, the king, he exercises his rule. And this rule is exercised through God's authority as king, his control over all things, in his presence, with his people, and throughout his creation. So in other words, the sovereignty of God refers to the fact that God is king over all things, and as king, has authority and control over all things, and he actually uses that power for the good of his people. And so we'll see that we should hope in God's sovereignty when all seems hopeless, in particular by answering two questions. What causes hopelessness? And we'll see several answers. Hopelessness can be caused by difficult circumstances, our foolishness, and our own helplessness. And then we'll ask, why should we hope in God's sovereignty? And we'll see several answers. We should hope in God's sovereignty because he is in control of our difficult circumstances, because he works through our actions, and because he keeps his promises. But before we begin to look at this in earnest, if you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 27, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use the community Bible under you or under uh, your neighbor's chair next to you. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Bible, Acts 27 can be found on page 936 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold number, 27, that's a chapter, followed by a small number, 1, that's a verse, and then... Um, once you have found it, I would invite you uh, to please take a moment to ready your own heart before you know what you're facing, you know what burdens you're carrying, you know what word of hope you need, and God has prepared a word for you. So ask him to speak it clearly to you this morning. you're ready to receive god's word say i'm ready wonderful look with me at verse one and when it was decided that we should set sail for italy they delivered paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the augustan cohort named julius and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of asia we put to sea accompanied by aristarchus a Macedonian from thessalonica The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, and because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. Then the centurion found the ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days, and we arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Samos, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So here in these first eight verses, we see that hopelessness can be caused by difficult circumstances. Hopelessness can be caused by difficult circumstances. Now, our passage picks up where we left off. Paul is going to Rome to be tried there by Caesar. They've decided the way they're going to get there is by sailing by ship. And so we initially see when they set sail, things start off all right. Paul is accompanied by friends, Aristarchus and Luke, who we know is included because all of a sudden the narrative now includes we in Oregon. So Luke, his physician, his friend, uh, the person who wrote this story, is here, present on the ship with him. And Paul is treated kindly by the Centurion. It says when they reach Sidon, he lets him go visit friends to be encouraged. Even though he's a prisoner, the Centurion seemingly trusts him to come back and make it all the way to Rome. And the journey itself initially seems to make good progress. But then, verses three and four, the journey begins to change. It becomes more and more difficult by the day. In verse 4, the text tells us they have to set sail under the lee of Cyprus, which if you're not familiar with nautical terms, just means they have to set sail on the side of the island that's protecting them from the wind. Why? Because the winds were against them. And then in verse 7, we read that they sailed slowly for a number of days, and with difficulty arrived to Nidus. Now, if you were to look at a map, and some of your Bibles may have maps in the back, What's striking about this story is how close these cities are to where they're going. The wind is so set against them, they're getting to the next port only by much difficulty. And so the verse 7 goes on to say, The wind did not even allow us to sail further. So once again, they're having to set sail under the lee or shelter of another island. And then finally in verse 8, They'll arrive in fair havens only after coasting there with difficulty. And so as a result of the winds being set against them, we'll see in the next several verses that much time has passed, and the voyage has now become dangerous. The voyage, because it's been so difficult, the winds have been set against them, stuff they can't control, circumstances that are simply hard. The voyage has taken much longer than they have expected, and the difficulty begins to make them desperate. And We'll consider in a moment what they do with that desperation, but for now, let me just say, I think all of us can identify with the sailor's experience. Many of us, through no fault of our own, circumstances are just difficult. Something happens to us. We get a bill, we get a sickness, we get something totally out of our control. And we think initially we can persevere through the difficulty. We're just going to push through it. But over time, as another wind, another storm, another difficulty comes in, We slowly become weary, we become tired, we become desperate, and we start to become hopeless. While initially we think we can make it through, eventually we begin to lose hope that things could ever be different. We think it's always going to be this way. The difficult circumstances will never end. And I can remember not that long ago feeling exactly this way. Two years ago in 2021, I remember being at a particular point of Despair might be too strong, but maybe not by much. As I wondered, will people ever stop leaving our church? Will new people ever stop coming? Will COVID restrictions ever end? And the questions went on and on. And that's just the ministry of the church. Those of you who've been here that long know there was all sorts of personal stuff going on in our lives. And it's easy in the midst of such difficulty, one thing after the next thing after the next thing, to wonder. Will there ever be light at the end of the tunnel? Will things always be this way? Hopelessness can be caused by our difficult circumstances. And when we're hopeless, we become desperate. And sadly, in our desperation, we can furtherly uh, compound the difficult situation by our own recklessness. So look with me in verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Here we see that hopelessness can be caused by our own foolishness. Hopelessness can be caused by our own foolishness. So after reaching Fair Haven, we learn that enough time has passed on this voyage that it's become dangerous to continue sailing. And the reason is simply that any time after the fast mentioned in verse 9, sea travel in the Mediterranean is extremely dangerous because storms come up quickly and fiercely during that season. And so by this time of year, typically, all sailing stops until spring so that you would be safe once you travel again. And so in verse 10... Paul urges them not to continue sailing for fear that this voyage would end at loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but of their very lives. Now, it's important for us to realize that Paul's counsel here is not based upon a revelation from God or a vision from God, but it's rather based upon Paul's own experience. In 2 Corinthians, Paul explains that three times he was shipwrecked, and once for a day and night he was adrift at sea. Paul had experience traveling on the Mediterranean. He knew the danger. He knew what could happen. And so based upon his great experience, he was keen to avoid all this. However, for whatever reason, the centurion decided to listen to the owner of the ship and to the captain who found the harbor of Fair Havens unsuitable for a reason we don't actually know. And so they want to make it to Phoenix, which was actually only 40 miles distance. Maybe, if the weather was good, one day's sailing. And so despite the difficulty to get to where they've gotten already, they decide, hey, we're going to risk it. We're going to reject Paul's counsel, and we're going to try to go 48 miles west to get to a better harbor that's more suitable. And according to verse 13, at first it seems like maybe they were right. They, the wind blows gently, and they decide to weigh anchor, which actually means bringing up the anchor so that they can sail along with the wind. But that's when their situation gets worse. Unexpectedly in some ways, but at least according to Paul's counsel, not unexpectedly. A storm called the nor- Northeaster that would be as powerful as a hurricane comes down upon them. They can't sail anymore. They can't control where they're going. And now the storm drives them out to sea, carrying them away from their destination. And surely, once again, we can all identify with the sailors and their desperation and their foolishness. In our desperation, we do something just a little bit risky, thinking, if I can get this done right, it'll make my situation better. But then when it doesn't pan out, it actually makes things worse. This is true even as it comes to listening to God's word. As one pastor points out, many times we're caught in the storms of life because we fail to heed a very basic principle or command of God. The Ten Commandments lay down the most basic uh, commands. Don't lie, be diligent and loving, don't have sex outside marriage, honor your parents, on and on. And though the world is filled with terrible suffering that, and evil that can overtake us even when we're walking obediently, It is amazing how many of our life storms come because we're not listening to God's word. We're going against his design rather than with it. And it's ironic then, that since Paul has written so much of the New Testament, that many of us have been in exactly the same situation as the sailors. With our lives coming apart, as the ship is coming apart, because we failed to listen to Paul. Then, in addition to the weariness of our difficult circumstances, we also find ourselves feeling guilty and ashamed because our foolishness and maybe even our sin has gotten us into an even worse situation. We've made our life even more complicated than it had to be because of our foolishness. And so we can't see a better way out, and hopelessness sets in even more. Hopelessness can be caused by our foolishness. And when difficult circumstances are combined with foolishness, it can lead us to a sense of helplessness. And we see this in verse 16 through 20. Look with me. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surdice, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Here we see hopelessness can be caused by helplessness. Hopelessness can be caused by helplessness. Finally, after having experienced so much difficulty and foolishly trying to get just a little bit farther, they're now being driven along the sea by a fierce storm. And they do everything they possibly can to keep the ship safe in the storm. First, they take up what would have been the lifeboat, which normally tags along the side of the ship, but in the storm would have had water pouring into it. And so with great difficulty, they manage to get it up and secure it. Next, they then secure the actual ship they're on, likely by uh, putting cables all the way around the hole of the ship to try to secure it together. Literally, as the ship is being threatened to tear apart, as the fierce waves and winds are working against it. Then third, we don't exactly know what the phrase they lowered the gear means, but it likely means something like they're trying to slow down the ship so that they don't crash on the land of Sirtis. And fourth, all of this still isn't working. The storm is still overtaking them. It's still dangerous. And so they begin to jettison the cargo, hoping that a lighter ship will be easier to control. But then fifth and finally, they even begin to toss the tackle of the ship, which is used to raise and lower the sails, which left the ship without any means of navigation or propulsion. This is the ultimate act of desperation. At this point, therefore... The crew is simply giving themselves over to the storm in hopes of riding it out or being rescued. But despite all their best efforts, there is nothing they can do to make it safer during the storm. They are at the mercy of this violent tempest. They are helpless. And after all this, the text tells us for several days, this storm is so thick, they neither see the sun nor the stars. Now, what we have to understand about this is how significant that is. How did sailors at this time navigate? By the sun and the stars. And so a storm being this dangerous meant not only have they tried everything and been found wanting, but they don't even know where they are. They're lost at sea. They can't even verify the position of the ship to know where they're going or where they're close to. And so can you imagine the fear that would set in? the hopelessness that would set in, in a situation like that, all your best efforts have accomplished nothing. There's nothing more you can do. And you don't even know where you are. You're lost at sea. And in such times of helplessness, hopelessness sets in because you feel stuck in your difficulty. Your foolishness may even have gotten you there. And now there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of the heartache. And just as any of us would lose hope in such circumstances, Luke recounts how at this point, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So hopelessness can be caused by difficult circumstances, foolish decisions, and certainly sets in once we recognize our own helplessness. This is what Paul and his companions experience. I wonder this morning how many of us can relate. Have difficult circumstances continued to crash upon you one after another, just as they did the sailors? Have you made things worse by your own recklessness or foolishness? And have you reached the point where you just can't see a way out? There's nothing that you can do to make things better. And when all this has happened, where is your hope when all seems hopeless? I just want to be frank for a moment with those of you who have not yet embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you've rejected the existence of God, then your hope, I want to say, is mere wishful thinking. There is no hope grounded in reality that should make you think when all seems lost that things will ever get better. If you've embraced Islam, self-help philosophies, some contemporary versions of Judaism and Roman Catholicism or other offshoots of Christianity like Mormonism, then what you are placing your hope in is your ability to do better. But when all seems hopeless, when you recognize you've done everything that you possibly can, that's not much hope either. Because it all rests on you to make it better when you already know you can't. And if you've embraced some of the Eastern religions, Hinduism or Buddhism, then your hope is in doing better the next time. Ultimately hoping that in your next life, you'll be wiser, smarter, more resourced to be able to navigate whatever hopeless situation you feel in. But that offers no hope for this time. But Jesus offers a far greater, far more durable, and far more certain hope. And that's what we'll be spending the rest of our time considering this morning. But right now, I want to give you just a simple preview. If you're hopeless because of difficult circumstances, remember, Jesus was God himself, and yet took on human flesh in order to enter our difficult circumstances, in order to identify with us, to be there with us and for us in our hopelessness. If you're hopeless because of your foolishness, remember, Jesus was born, Not just to deal with your foolishness, but to deal with the far greater problem of your sin and rebellion against God. Which he conquered through his death in our place and his resurrection on the third day. And if you're hopeless because of your helplessness, then there's actually no better place for you to be. Because this is precisely why Jesus came. He came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. Those who recognize they're in need. Those who recognize they're helpless. Jesus came because we're helpless to fix our situation. We're helpless to fix our sin. We're helpless to fix our foolishness. We're helpless to fix our circumstances. So the only thing you need to have hope in Jesus is to recognize you have need. To recognize you are helpless. And to turn to him, the one who's able to handle it all. And so if you've never personally repented of your sin and trusted in Christ to have a relationship with him so that you might have hope in the difficulties of this life, I want to plead with you today to do so. If you need to talk more about what that looks like and what that means, please come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We would love to tell you more about how you can have hope in Jesus. He will give you a hope that cannot be shaken. Which then brings us to our next question. Why should we hope in God's sovereignty? Why should we hope in God's sovereignty when all seems hopeless? Look with me at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Here we we see that we should hope in God's sovereignty because he is in control of our difficult circumstances. We should hope in God's sovereignty because he's in control of our difficult circumstances. So after all hope of salvation has been abandoned, The people had been without food for a long time. Paul stands up to encourage them. Although he begins in what may sound surprising to our ears. Paul begins with what sounds like to us, and I told you so. He says in verse 21, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete. But Paul is not some smart aleck who's insisting on having been right. Instead, he's seeking to establish his credibility so they'll listen to him now. So his comment isn't so much, I told you so, but rather, you didn't listen to me before, please listen to me now. And specifically, he urges them to take heart, because an angel of the God to whom he belongs, whom he worships, has reassured him that Paul will reach safety, because he has to testify in Rome. And not only that, that all who are traveling with him will reach safety. But, in the process of coming to safety, he also reiterates... That they're going to experience another difficulty. The ship has to run aground on some island. In other words, the hope Paul gives them is not that the storm's going to calm down. It's not that their difficult circumstances will be relieved. Rather, the hope that Paul offers them is that God has promised that he will bring them to safety through a shipwreck, through another difficulty. So make no mistake here. What Paul is reiterating is that God is in control of every difficult circumstance they face. He was not surprised by them. He was not wondering what he was going to do. He was totally in control of the storm. And he's going to use even another difficult circumstance in order to bring them to safety. The winds that hindered them, the waves that crashed upon their boat, the tempest that lay upon them, all would obey him with just a word. In fact, years earlier, that exact thing happened. As Jesus and his disciples get on a boat and set sail and a storm comes upon them, the waves crash upon the boat, filling the boat so that it begins to sink. And when Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the sea and says to them, Peace, be still. With these three brief words, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The wind, the waves, and the storm were still just as responsive to the one who had spoken them into existence. Listen, the God who commands the wind, the waves, and the sea is the same God who commands the storms of your life. Even in a room this size, the storms we face range everything from difficult decisions to difficult relationships to difficult diagnoses and more we could go on saying. And the good news for you is that no matter what you're going through, the God who controls it, who controls the seas, is in control of your life. He's not surprised by what's happening to you. He's not wondering, what am I going to do to help them get through? And instead, he invites you to hope in him in the midst of the uncertainty. He wants to tr- you to trust that the one who could calm the sea with a word... Could calm the storms of your life. And even if he doesn't calm the storm in your life, like he didn't calm the storm with Paul, he can and will bring you safely home to eternity's shores through the storm. So hope in God's sovereignty because he is in control of our difficult circumstances. Second, look with me at verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow... Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless those men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul then urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God. In the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Here we see that we should hope in God's sovereignty because he works through our actions. He works through our actions. Now, Paul has already said, back in the passage we just looked at, that there will be no loss of life on this journey. Only the ship will be lost. God has promised that. And yet in verse 31, when the sailors are attempting to steal the boat and get away, Paul says, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then in verse 34, when after two weeks they've not eaten because they're so anxious, they're so fearful of what's going to happen to them, Paul pleads with them, Eat something! so that you might be strengthened for whatever comes their way. Apparently, Paul thinks that despite God's promise and plan that assured them they will be saved, he also thinks their actions still matter. And this confounds the either-or thinking that dominates the way we think about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. On the one hand, we are tempted to think if God is really sovereign, if he's really in control of everything then my decisions, my choices don't matter at all. Why bother? On the other hand, we're tempted to think if our choices and actions really matter, then God cannot really be determining all things from the end to the beginning, as Isaiah would say. And so when it comes to this passage, we're tempted to say, if God promised no loss of life would happen, then it doesn't matter what the sailors do. They could steal the boat, they could go scuba diving, they could do whatever they want, and everyone's going to make it safely. It doesn't matter if they eat food to strengthen themselves, because they're all going to make it to safety. However, as the late pastor Tim Keller points out, Paul's actions show that Christianity does not buy into this either-or view. Unique among all the religions and philosophies, it insists both everything is determined by the plan of God, and our choices and decisions matter. They are significant. They make a difference. There is no way to explain Paul's behavior unless that's true. In other words, according to Christianity, we believe historical events are determined by God through our choices. Or as I said it earlier, we should hope in God's sovereignty because he works through our actions. And he goes on to say, Tim Keller does, that now intellectually it's not easy to explain how these two things, God's absolute sovereignty and Human responsibility can coexist together. And so we have to leave some room for mystery. And as J.I. Packer says, we don't need to worry about reconciling friends. And yet, the beauty of the Christian view is in how absolutely practical it is. Think if on the one hand, if everything is fixed despite our actions, what possible incentive do I have to do my best? Why get up in the morning and do anything at all If whatever I do, it's not going to make a difference. On the other hand, if my decisions really determine my life course and the course of history, and you're really thinking about that, I'd be afraid to do anything at all. If we think back just a few years, I'm sure all of us can identify things we thought would be best that in reality were horrible. And if we really think about and are really honest about our decisions on such important issues, If we really think that's going to determine the course of our life and the course of history, we'd be paralyzed. As I pointed out earlier, we've all seen that sometimes it's our own foolishness that contributes to our hopelessness. So how could we have confidence to make choices knowing how limited our wisdom is, knowing that they could ruin God's plan for our life? But if we look at Paul, we see exactly how this unique approach God is sovereign, we're responsible, gives us enormous strength. On the one hand, we have to make every effort to strain and do our best because our behavior and our conduct actually makes a real difference. It's significant. It has real consequences. But on the other hand, we can relax, knowing that whatever we do, whatever happens, it cannot change God's wise purposes and plan for us. All the other views are most impractical. If you to the extreme say everything is about choice, then you should be extremely frightened. And if you're not frightened, it's either because you're proud and have overestimated your abilities or you've not thought enough about your own life and choices. Anyone who takes the fate view would be indifferent, passive, cynical. Why bother? And so the Christian can stay calm, yet alert in storms because of this hope in God yet recognition that we have responsibility. We can maintain hope no matter what we face. And our hope actually leads us to action. And so the biblical view is God is both fully, completely, and totally sovereign, totally in control, and yet our actions really do matter. We really are responsible. And the good news for us, then, is that even if our foolish choices are the reason why we're in our hopeless situation, We can take heart knowing our foolish choices do not thwart God's purposes, his good and gracious and glorious purpose for our lives. And so we can maintain hope no matter what we face, no matter what we've done, because God is sovereign. And he is always working through our actions and through our choices to bring about his good and our glorious purpose. And not just that, but if we're fearful because of our foolishness, we can actually take responsibility. We can recognize, hey, my foolishness got me here, and so I'm going to repent if it's sin, or I'm going to set out on a new trajectory, and I can do so with hope because God will use even those actions to accomplish his purposes. We can correct our mistakes and move forward with a sense of hope because God actually works through our actions. So we should hope in God's sovereignty because he works through our actions. And finally, look with me at verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. They noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So here we see we should hope in God's sovereignty because he keeps his promises, because he keeps his promises. So finally, after at least two weeks lost at sea, driven by a great storm, they notice a bay with a beach, which they hope that they'll run ashore and be able to wait out the storm and then push the ship back into the water to continue sailing. However, as the angel had revealed to Paul, they end up running the ship atop a reef, where the ship now being stuck out in the ocean is being broken apart by the violent waves. And at this point, out of fear that some of the prisoners might escape, the soldiers began to plot to kill them, so that their escape would not come back on them. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan, and instead offered another plan, which, as verse 44 tells us, so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, this is not the main point of this passage, but I just want you to notice here, A quick contrast between good authority and bad authority here. The soldiers and the centurion both have authority over the prisoners, but the soldiers are so concerned by the consequence of what will happen if the prisoners escape, they're only interested in doing what's good for themselves, not in seeing the prisoners safely returned. The centurion, on the other hand, is concerned, yes, about guarding them and keeping them, but he's also interested in protecting the prisoners. That's his job. And so it is the difference between bad and good authority. Bad authority seeks to use authority to protect the person in authority, whereas good authority is seeking the flourishing and the well-being of all. This is what the centurion did for the sake of Paul. And in doing so, actually then fulfills God's promise. So it was that all were brought safely to land. God kept his promise to Paul and by extension to all those on the ship. And the God who kept his promise to Paul is the God who keeps all of his promises to us forever. Second Timothy 2 wonderfully declares this. Even if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. God's promises don't depend on us. They depend on his faithfulness. And ultimately, we know that he's faithful and that he will keep his promises, not just because he kept his promise to Paul not just because he's kept his promise in the past to us one time or another, but because he gave us his son, Jesus. Paul writes in Second Corinthians 1, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Or as he says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God's past faithfulness, provides the ground for hope in his future faithfulness. That God's past keeping of his promise and giving us Christ gives us the reason to believe that he'll keep all of his promises. Because God kept his promise to deal with our sin and rebellion by providing Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin, we can believe, we can trust, we can hope that God will keep all his promises. In fact... It is this past faithfulness that, as the author of Hebrews describes, that gives us the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In this way, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not only produces gratitude in us, thankfulness for what he did in the past, but it also produces hope, faith in the future, that God will continue to be faithful, that God will continue to be gracious, that God is the kind of God we can hope in. And that's what we need when all seems hopeless. We need to look back at what God has done, especially what he's done for us in Jesus. And then we look at our situation with the eyes of faith and hope, trusting that God will continue to keep his promises. So where do you feel helpless? Is it a struggle with saying you can't seem to get any traction on? Is there a situation that despite your best efforts, it feels like nothing you can do makes any difference? Is there a person you're hoping would come to faith in Christ, but they seem so hardened to the gospel you've given up hope? Or wherever you feel helpless, what I want to encourage you to do is search the Bible for one promise that would be specific to your situation. So if you're struggling with sin... Perhaps it's Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. If you're struggling with a difficult situation, you just can't seem to do enough. Perhaps the promise is 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Or perhaps if you're trying to share the gospel who seems so hardened to it. Perhaps the promise is a combination of John 15 and 16. But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Whatever helpless situation you've found, you're in, once you find that biblical promise specific to your situation, then remember Jesus. Remember Jesus' perfect life that earned for you your debt of righteousness that you owe to God. Remember Jesus' bloody death on the cross in your place so that you could be forgiven and cleansed from all your sin. Remember Jesus' resurrection from the grave, defeating the power of sin and Satan, and then believe that if God has already done all of that for you in Jesus Christ, then surely he'll keep his promise to you. Surely he will do what he said. In fact, this is what he delights to do. So hope in God's sovereignty because he keeps his promises. So many of us can remember time after time after time he has been faithful. Look back at that faithfulness and remember so that you will trust in his faithfulness in the future. He has kept his promises to us again and again and again. But most importantly, he kept his promise by giving us his son. So surely he will do all that he has said he will do again and again and again. So Northwood, hope in God's sovereignty when all seems hopeless. Whether it's hopeless because of difficult circumstances or your own foolishness or simply because you've come to a point of helplessness. Hope in his sovereignty because he is in control of your difficult circumstances. He works through your actions. And he keeps all of his promises. And so as we conclude our time together this morning in God's word, I want to invite you to reflect and respond to what God has said to you through his word. And perhaps the questions on the screen will help. What causes of hopelessness do you identify with right now? If there's some in your life, I encourage you to be honest today with God or a friend about what those causes are. How does Jesus' authority over all things give you hope in your current circumstances? Reflect on his authority, his power, his control over the literal storm and the storms of your life, and then ask him to use that reflection on his power to give you hope. Where do you need to take responsibility for addressing the causes of hopelessness in your life? Confess your foolishness, perhaps your sin to God. And then ask a brother or a sister in Christ to help you find a path of wisdom. Trusting God will use your action to accomplish his purpose. And finally, how is God's faithfulness in the past? Cultivating trust in his sovereignty in the present. Pick a promise. Remember his faithfulness in Jesus. And then ask him to help you trust him now. Let's take a moment to reflect on what God has been saying to us in his word. Father, we do not want to be like the man who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. We want to be the kind of person who hears your word and then does it. And so, Lord, we ask today, as we have heard your word, you would fill our hearts with great hope and the sovereignty and goodness of Jesus. And that would give us great confidence, and great peace in the storms of this life. Please, help us to see in stunning glory and beauty not just Jesus' power, but his goodness and grace so that we would trust him no matter what. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.